This week on the SSPX podcast, we'll be sharing the parish mission from St. Vincent de Paul's in Kansas City as it was delivered in 2004. Today, Passion Thursday, we'll be hearing from Father Kenneth Novak on the topic of God's mercy and justice and a reflection on who among us is standing at the foot of his cross. If you would like to hear more parish missions, reflections, conferences, as well as our Crisis in the Church series and Questions with Father series, please visit sspxpodcast.com. And next week, we'll have another series of meditations on the Passion of Our Lord for Holy Week. Now we'll turn to the Thursday evening mission from Father Novak. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. I don't want to be here tonight, so to speak. Do you ever have one of those kind of days? Just one of those kind of days. I don't want to be here because I had one of those kind of days. We're at the foot of the cross. We don't want to be at the foot of the cross. I don't want to be at the foot of the cross. Selfish me. Our Lord is soon to hang to die for us. And there will be many that will not be at the foot of the cross. Where's that couple? It was marriage feast. Our Lord attended, performing his first miracle to save them the embarrassment of not having enough wine. Where are the 5,000 that he fed on this day? Where are those that he performed miracles on along the way? Where are his apostles on this day? Our Lord appears to be a total failure, a total crash and burn project. Who wants to be associated with this? His church, his new church, his Catholic church is reduced to one member with the head, and that is his own mother. No one wanted to be there then, and a few of us want to be there now. You're to be thanked. You're to be thanked because you are here. You want to get close to the cross. Because our Lord Jesus Christ, you know, is not dying on a cross just for you and for me. He will die on his cross in us, in you, in me. You've heard some voices from Calvary. You've heard some voices from our Lord's passion over the last days. Tonight, we are going to hear the voice of the good thief, Dismas, Saint Dismas. Who's going to see beneath the mud and the blood and the grime and the sweat, the humiliation, the mockery, the scorn, the pity, the pitiful sight, 
Through this ugly veil, he is going to see the Savior of the world, the Savior of his soul. In one moment, he will become, as some doctors say, some doctors of the church say, he will become the greatest saint after Our Lady, after Peter, after Paul, Saint Dismas, the good thief, on our Lord's right hand. I was assigned to speak about the good thief in regards to grace, in regards to the mercy of God and confidence. Let's just take a moment to refer to St. Thomas Aquinas and give to ourselves, give for ourselves a definition of mercy. What is mercy? St. Thomas Aquinas tells us that Mercy is to take pity upon someone to such an extent that one goes out of themselves to help, to assist. That is to say that it's not going to be merely a sentiment. That is not mercy. Mercy is pitying someone to the extent that one actually acts to relieve the suffering, to relieve what must be relieved. Mercy is heartfelt sympathy for another's distress impelling us to help him if we can. Hence, the distress of another, that is, the evil suffered by another, is the motive of mercy. In itself, mercy, in itself, is the greatest virtue, says St. Thomas Aquinas. In itself, it is the greatest virtue. For us here on earth, however, it is right next to the virtue that we must have in order to be merciful, and that is charity. God is charity. God is charity already. In itself, the greatest of virtues is this mercy. And on this day, we're going to see the great example of God's mercy for this one soul to the right of the Son of God. Jesus Christ in the middle as the judge. In the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, we know that the judge of all souls will be in the middle. And there is our Lord Jesus Christ in the middle. On his right, one who will be invited to be a sheep, to come to paradise. On the left, a goat, a reflection of the final judgment, the general judgment. But mercy goes to this thief, to the good thief. And then grace. What is grace? Grace is a divine influence which, doing away with the perverse and corrupt inclinations of the old man, puts in their place the noble thoughts and longings of the new man. It destroys the bad leaven and forms him it acts upon him and forms him into a new paste, a new thing, a new creature. So that from sinner that he was, he becomes a penitent, a just man, and a saint. Such is grace. Grace, says St. Thomas Aquinas, 
comes from two causes. And they're important to understand in order to realize what happened there on Mount Calvary to St. Dismas. To Dismas, the thief. A thief, a murderer. A gangster. They received this most cruel punishment because it was considered to be one of the most cruel things that could be done. We take it for granted that you can drive off somewhere and not be ambushed. That may be changing, in fact. With the lawlessness now that walks our streets, you may be thinking right now about what might happen to your car out there by the time the night is over. Maybe you locked your doors as you drove into the neighborhood. I do not know, but there was a time, and the story of the Samaritan is an instance, where robbers were all over the land, hiding and waiting for those who left themselves unprotected and at risk. And so to stamp out these gangsters, these thieves, these bandits, these robbers, crucifixion was the penalty, and Dismas was a robber. A killer. Grace has an active cause and an instrumental cause. The active cause, the inward cause, the active cause which is, in, which is inward is that from only God alone. God alone is the active cause of grace. But there will be instrumental causes of grace. Instrumental causes of grace that are used as the secondary causes for that first grace to work. So, for Dismas, the first cause of the grace that inspires him to have the faith that this Jesus Christ, this King of the Jews, is really his Savior. This is the first cause of grace. That is God. That he asks to be taken to paradise is the first grace of God. But there will be instruments, there will be instruments, instruments that provoke that first grace, that are used to provoke that first grace. And what are those for Dismas? Well, Father Libiades last night told you the story. Jesus Christ has seen this Dismas before. This is the Dismas which led the band of robbers to spare his life when the family fled to Egypt. And now he sees him a grown man. Such is the story. And many fathers tell it. Some say the instrumental grace or the secondary cause of first grace was the patience of this victim in the middle. The patience, the forbearance of this man in the middle. If you're a thief, if you're a bandit, if you're a robber, you are going to want to fight back. You want to kill those who assail you. Our Lord Jesus Christ does not do that. And this maybe impressed Dismas enough to ask his question. Some say that it was Mary's prayers. Again, Mary, the mother, who knew it was this Dismas, 
perhaps, that spared the family on the way to Egypt. And some say, surprisingly, that in the arrangement of the crosses there on Calvary, sometime during those three hours, sometimes, sometime in the lifting up of the cross, by which our Lord will draw all things to himself somewhere, sometime during that period, the shadow of our Lord's right hand was cast upon Dismas. The shadow of his right hand was cast upon Dismas. The doctors will talk about the miracle of Peter, who as he walked along, casting the shadow of his person, upon whom that shadow fell, they were healed. And if for Peter to heal by his shadow, how much more our Lord Jesus Christ could heal a soul by his shadow. The right hand of our Lord casting its shadow as though our Lord were to raise it in blessing over the thief on his right. The good thief is going to make in his few words acts of faith, hope, and charity. Acts of faith, hope, and charity. He is going to show his faith by believing that this is a Messiah. This is a Savior. Now remember, this is the same Dismas who has had none of the advantages of other stellar figures in the gospel. Even in the Old Testament. Dismas is not going to have the advantage of Abraham to whom angels will appear to speak of the Messiah to come from his race. He will not have the advantage of Moses with burning bushes and thunder and lightning, lightning and fingers writing in stone. You will not have the advantage of even the apostles. The apostles who for three years are going to see miracles, who are going to hear the words from the greatest headmaster of any seminary that there's ever been. This is, going to, is not going to have any of that. He won't have any of those advantages. Yet he will make this act of faith, which will be the basis for the hope that he will show and the charity that he will speak. Faith is the basis. Faith cometh by hearing. What, what did Dismas hear? What did Dismas hear in our Lord's greatest sermon with those short and clipped words between exhausted breaths? And then hope. Hope which now is the movement of the will. The movement of the will. To believe, yes, but after that then, to love. He shows the hope that has to come with our belief. That surely we will be with our Lord Jesus Christ in paradise someday if we believe. 
hope. And then charity. How audacious Dismas is. How much hope he shows. As though he never left, as though he never gave up something of his thievery. The doctors talk about him stealing heaven by his brashness to first believe and then hope that what he would ask would be fulfilled with just a little evidence that he saw. And then the will which moves one to love, the charity of the good thief, inspired by his tongue, as if he would have said within himself, I am the worst of sinners. It is for my sake that he drinks the cup of bitterness to the dregs to save me from everlasting torments. He is covered with wounds from head to foot. He dies to give me life. The wounds of Christ are not his wounds, but rather the wounds of my sin. And so the thief, seeing, as it were, his own wounds in the body of his Lord, loved him the more. The faith, the hope, and the charity, they're shown by Dismas. This is the goodness of God, dear faithful, that he takes care of us as he does. From Father Chivray, we were the ones who should have been in that place, but we had none of what it would take to hold it. To hold a place on the cross. Our corrupted sentiments would not have known how to touch God. Our courage is short-lived and we would have lost heart. And then Jesus stepped forward. Let me take their place, Father. The place they should have occupied in the face of your justice. You love me. You will accept my apology. The place was so well taken that he occupied it in the name of each and every one of us in our place. Through him, God received the homage, the repentance, and promises that justice required us to express, but which we could never have found in our memory of our heart to tell him ourselves. Had he not come, he did what we would have desired to do, though we were without the capacity to do it. In heaven, we will see which of his moans of pain earned us the desire to change. We will see which of his silences earned us the strength to confess. We will see which of the insults he accepted merited for us a longed-for humility. We will see which of his wounds was our wound, the wound for us, the wound because of us. We will understand that all of our progress, our inspirations, and our efforts come from this source, that we owe them to him, to his goodness, and we will fall over ourselves to tell him, thank you. You were good to me, who had been so slow to understand and so willful. How his goodness should give us confidence, because we can be sure of him, though we are not sure of ourselves. Come and find him as often as you need him, 
he welcomes with goodness. We are sure of his compassion for us on account of his own passion. He listens to us with kindness. We are sure of him. We are sure of him. What a grace in human life to be sure of someone. To be sure of someone. Like Dismas is sure of the someone, the someone. That we can be sure of, though his creatures fail us. By his passion, he enters into our weakness and misery in order to give them a meaning full of hope and a reason for us not to lose heart. There's the confidence. Since our very wretchedness earned us the example of such great courage. The goodness of our Lord Jesus Christ crucified, immobilized by the nails, so that we might always come to him. The goodness of God to give us the grace that is necessary. You know, we depend upon God for existence and for our ability to act. Man's intellect, therefore, needs God to know anything whatever. Man's intellect needs God to know anything whatever. But man's intellect needs God in a special way to know those things which are supernatural. And that is why we need supernatural light, supernatural light, which is grace. We need help also, supernatural aid, supernatural help, supernatural light to achieve our supernatural ends. The strength that we are given, the strength that's given to us, which is added to the natural strength of our will, power, is bestowed on us as a gift of God. This is grace. This is grace. If there was not the fall in the Garden of Eden, we would not need this supernatural grace. There's something about knowing God naturally in the Garden of Eden. But with our parents' first fall, that all came crashing down. And now we need the help of the grace which is being paid for by our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. We can no longer achieve what was in our nature originally to achieve. And so since Adam and Eve's fall, we need grace. What is natural cannot encompass. What is natural cannot wrap itself around what is supernatural. We need grace. Sanctifying grace first, which the church teaches us, is given to us in our baptism. To establish us as the adopted sons and daughters of God the Father brothers and sisters to our Lord Jesus Christ. But after that, then, too, we need the assistance of the actual graces. The graces of action. 
The graces of action. Now, Dismas is going to exemplify this for us. Certainly by a baptism of desire. Dismas is one of the church, in the church. Who spends his two minutes in limbo before the gates of heaven are opened by our Lord Jesus Christ, who dies. The graces of action. Our Lord is paying for this for us. And in his death, he is paying it also for Dismas. These are the graces, actual graces, which come to us, first of all, to inspire us to do a good thing. Then to help us to do the thing. And thirdly, to finish, to accomplish the thing. Those are actual graces. And they come in this set of threes. Otherwise, there is an incompletion or an imperfection, so to speak, in the action. First, to inspire us, to help us to do the thing, to do the thing, to finish the thing. For instance, what inspires a young man to open up the door for a young lady? You are inspired to do that. It is an act of charity. If its motive is to serve the good God, it's an act of charity. You are inspired to do that. That is a grace. That is not something that you have dreamed up on your own. Then to do the act. To actually turn a knob and open up a door and stand there as a gentleman to allow her to go through the door. Second grace. Third grace. To complete the act. To finish it. Otherwise, would a boy do this? He would let the door slam on the girl. Imagine all that happening. That is all happening. We are saved by faith and works. Faith and works. You see how important the graces are. We take for granted. Take so for granted. A whole lifetime of graces. For Dismas, just minutes. Just minutes. That's all I needed. Grace. We talk about grace as operating grace, which moves our mind and will. We talk about grace which cooperates with the grace of operation. Even our cooperation with graces is another grace. This should humble you and me. This should humble you and me. We are not doing anything on our own, so to speak. Everything is out of the bounty of God. Everything is out of the goodness of God. All of us get enough grace to get to heaven. Some get more grace. Some get less. But we all get enough grace to get to heaven. The church teaches. 
Grace heals the soul, awakens the desire for good, helps carry the desire for good to the actual achievement of the good, it gives perseverance, and it conducts the soul to glory. Grace heals the soul, awakens in it the desire for good, helps us carry the desire for good to the actual achievement of the good, it gives perseverance, and it conducts the soul to glory. Our life is just a chain of grace, a chain of graces, more or less, more or less. Even the preparation or disposition to receive the grace is entirely from God. Entirely from God, says St. Thomas Aquinas. To talk a little bit about confidence in God, which is shown to us by the good thief. Our Lord leaves to us Our Lord leaves to us on the cross this great thunderbolt of this great example of a thunderbolt of grace to give us confidence. We find in our Lord Jesus Christ something we do not find in men, infinite power, united to infinite kindness, goodness, justice, and love. He is the only one, absolutely the only one, who possesses every claim to our confidence, our trust. Perhaps it is in this regard, in the regard that is of confidence, that we cause him the most pain. That we may cause our Lord Jesus Christ the most pain, if it could be said that we cause him pain. Because of our lack of confidence. I do not know if this pain is really something our Lord feels for himself. It would not seem so. But the pain he must know is for you and me for just missing it, so to speak. We do have a free will. We do have a free will. And grace and free will are linked, but we don't know how they're linked. How God moves us while still keeping us free. God is God. So when we don't have confidence in him, his disappointment is on, for our part, not anything on his part. When we think of him, we are blinded by his justice. Ah, justice. We think of it that way. Hard. Yet we are obliged to admit that his justice and his justice alone is also a form of love. You know that in your homes. The justice of the home requires that there be punishments. No good daddy or mommy is giving out punishments, is penalizing their children, you children, out of justice alone. It is a loving hand that even swings the wooden spoon. Really. 
His justice is necessarily colored by his love, and it is consoling to think that we will be judged by him and not by man. His justice stretches to the point of even becoming love. Dismiss. The thief rolls the dice one time and he wins heaven. In pure justice, that does not seem fair to you and me. Die up there, you thief. You grubby thief. Go rot, you neighbor. Because it takes everything into account and not just one aspect of the situation. The proper attribute of love is to be all-encompassing. Our Lord does not come close to scaredy cats. Our Lord does not come close to the wary. Remember Peter? He sees our Lord on the water. Our Lord beckons him to come. Peter went. And he walked on water for a time until all of a sudden he got scared. If we're scared of God, God can't come close to us. The thief is not scared. He's not scared. All the mob around this victim, it was scary enough. Scary enough. Our Lord did not spare himself any humiliation. Why? Because this is going to be the payment for the root of all evil, which is pride. The antidote to pride is Humility. And so our Lord is going to take it all. Take it all. And what we see and what we do not see, either the point of being or speaking out loud, thoughts of being abandoned. In his human nature, he felt he was being abandoned. And if those that are diabolical enough to desecrate the blessed sacrament by defecating on it, do you think our Lord was spared that humiliation on the way to Calvary by a mob which would have eaten him if it could have being in such frenzy? You must be brash. You must be bold like a Dismas to believe that this was a Savior hanging next to you. Dying the death of a criminal it used to be something that would strike us, the death of a criminal. But criminals now are celebrities. So put someone else, not a criminal. It wasn't too long ago in Goldsboro, a man came to our door there in our little rectory on a Saturday night. Someone from the street. There's a smell. There's a demeanor. It's not pretty to look at. Some scabs on his hands, open sores on his ears. Here, 
on his chin. I shook his hand, and he told me he had full-blown AIDS. Could I help him? My first reaction is, I will help you, but stay here and don't use our bathroom. That is what I said. So think of somebody like that. Criminals are celebrities. But what is the most revolting that you can think of in humanity? You are not there. If our Lord looked anything like that, you would not be looking to him to say, you are the Messiah. Take me to paradise. This saint, this Dismas, had such confidence. Because instead of having confidence in Christ, we are weak enough to have confidence in ourselves. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the more that he senses the tempest building around him, and the more it howls, the more calm and peaceful he remains, the more he thinks of others and of doing good, and the more he finds it natural to do so. Our Lord Jesus Christ has confidence in his Father's protection. While he will talk about God, when he teaches us the prayer that we all pray, he will say, Our Father, he will say. A prayer of confidence, not of theology, so to speak. Confidence consists first and foremost in desiring the will of God, desiring it, just wanting it. Every event in our life, great or small, serves and turns toward the glory of God. In other words, for Christ, the importance of an event does not consist in the joy or the sadness it brings. That is only the accidental element, not the hidden reality of the event. The hidden reality is the dose of love that emanates from it, the intention of making everything contribute to the glory of the Father. The event itself, no matter how small it is, I don't care if you're picking your teeth, with a toothpick or putting a scrunchie around your braid or smiling to your wife or fluffing up the pillow for your man. The event itself is not small. It is always something of great consequence since it has its origin in the divine permission. All that God does is great, even when it is small. It is not great because of its accidents. The reality is that all things are great. Because God does nothing small. That's the reality, the essential reality. But the accidents may make it small. Because why? It causes sorrow. We think it has no importance. It is great, however, because it is thought by God. And so it will have divine repercussions. It's like a big machine. Think of a big machine. Big grinding gears. Those grinding gears get as much attention from the designer of the machine as the one screw in the axle from which they spin. 
If that screw falls out, the big cogs will fall away from each other and the machine will malfunction. Original sin has left its mark and climbing is sometimes rewarded by some terrible scrapes. But it is a landscape organized in advance by the fatherhood of God. In an obscure and difficult journey, there's always the traveler who does not want to go on. There's always the traveler who does not want to go on. The traveler who grumbles but goes on. The traveler who manages to avoid all the difficult spots. The traveler who goes on courageously right to the end. And the traveler who calls for help. In, all, in other words, there is a personal way of looking at life, prideful and looking out for yourself all alone, or the Catholic way, which is to live our lives in the presence of God. To live that way is to live in the confidence of God. The cum fidei, the with faith. Cum fidei, the confidence in God. Having confidence, as Christ did, in the midst of this divine landscape, which for him was something horrific, means having the certitude that events are not organized for joy or pain, but to give glory to God. If we know how to do this, we know how to have confidence in God. If we don't know how to raise events to this level, we can only be mistrustful. If the ways of God are not our own, our sensibility will be constantly disappointed. If we do not want to give glory to God, we will never understand the meaning or the reason for being. If we don't have confidence in God, we will not know the reason for our being. And we will end up saying with a great many other souls, I didn't think that's what it was. I never imagined things would end up this way. confidence. Rather than saying, I don't want that, they said, God organized things that way. Do we hear ourselves talking these next lines? Why do Jesus Christ and his grace intervene so strongly that I can nearly feel it when I don't need them? And why Whenever I feel my human weakness, all I get is silence. When things are going along decently, I'm not even asking for grace. It gets so close I can touch it. When I'm starving, when I'm in the dark, I'm asking for it, all I get is silence. I ask for light, and all I have is darkness. How can you expect me to have confidence? When I ask him to meet me in the middle of the battle, he does not come. We are already doubting our Lord before we even ask him for help when we talk like that. We're doubting him already. To call for a meeting with somebody in whom you 
claim to have confidence is already a lack of confidence. Let's talk this over, Jesus. When I need you, you're not there. Why? When I don't need you, then I feel you there. Why? Already to have such a meeting, such a talk with our Lord Jesus Christ, in a way, is already to betray a lack of confidence. You give our Lord an order. You and I give our Lord an order. I doubt that he is capable of understanding the situation. I did not believe him. I tried to keep a step ahead of him. I did not say to him with open arms, I have confidence in you. We did not say, I have no orders to give you, as if I could order you to be present. But you may expect, you may expect my heart to keep vigil in this night where you have left me. I know that you are beside me, just as you were on Mount Tabor. Our way of approaching Christ, dear faithful, my way of approaching Christ is a lack of faith. And that is why we do not succeed. Imagine Dismas. We do not know for sure the name of the thief on the left side. He is lost to us. And we would not know the name of Dismas if he had not had this great faith and confidence. Why do I have to meet you on a cross? Why couldn't you have put me there in a temple with you? Why could you not have met me along the way? Why'd you wait till I was this age and not save me when I was that young man in Egypt? I talk like that too. You may talk like that too to our Lord. This is not confidence. That's why I don't succeed. And why the day is looked upon as being a bad day when in fact it is the best day. Because it's God's plan and not mine. Reason organizes things in function of the demands of created nature, while faith organizes in function of the needs of our soul. Reason organizes things in order to satisfy created nature. Faith organizes confidence organizes things regarding the needs of the soul. Our soul is made for uncreated nature. Our soul is made for God, uncreated nature, divine nature. And it will be treated on the level of uncreated reality, which is God. Our ways are not his ways. His ways are not our ways. Confidence demands an act of understanding. I know in whom I believe. That's Dismas. I know in whom I believe. You can take me to paradise. Will you take me to paradise?
the state. And we must know this even when we feel like we are being abandoned. This is not just personally. You know, when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, they were both cursed. Eve as woman, Adam as man. Adam as the man, as the head of the race, the first Adam. This first Adam is told that he is going to be now punished and he is going to have to till the earth, which will grow weeds and thorns. For his defiance of God, his disobedience to God, and his attempt to set himself up on the throne, to be like God, he's going to have to till the land by the sweat of his brow and work, and there will be thorns and there will be brambles. This is why our Lord Jesus Christ, as part of his passion, will take upon himself a crown of thorns. He will wear this derisive purple and a stick for a scepter. A piece of cattail for a scepter so he can be made to look as a king and mocked as a king. This is what our Lord Jesus Christ means to show to us by that. He is going to let us see what our kingship, what my kingship, because I want to do what I would want to do when I want to do it. I want to sin. I want to be a king. I don't want you to be a king. This is what your kingship looks like. It's a mockery of my kingship. And the thorns you put on your own head. Our Lord cures people. Your sins are forgiven you, he says to Mary Magdalene. We want to be healed too. Our Lord shows all this kindness to so many people. We are even sometimes envious. How can our Lord expect us not to think that he would heal us like he did to a Mary Magdalene or to a Paul, a Saul? My weaknesses are the same. It is because your reasons to abstain are just as precise, just as deliberate, and just as chosen as were your reasons to act upon them and not act upon me. If what I am saying to you is not true, Lord, then, then you are not true. Your knowledge is such that it penetrates not only the secondary causes of grace to mobilize them according to the activities you expect of them, but also the first causes in such a way that they all work together toward the harmonious whole in which the necessary course of events gives the same testimony to your power as the miracles you decide to work. The best way of organizing our lives, dear faithful, is to let the Holy Ghost organize them for us. Through circumstances, events, personal graces. I want to believe that. It's hard to say we choke on those words. But that is the fact. To whom do we go for the words of eternal life? Only our Lord. If I do not want to follow the path you have chosen for me, that means I am audacious enough to imagine that I would have discovered and chosen something better than what you are offering me. Such an attitude toward our life eliminates a good many worries that are the result of our native mistrust. Can we accept what our Lord gives to us?
because human nature is distrustful, because it realizes that it does not possess all the powers that it should, it is afraid that life events will snatch away what powers it has and take all its vitality. That's why I'm not confident. That is why I am not confident. I am afraid that life events will snatch away what powers I do have and take away my vitality. Deprived of a part of its strength, I act as my parents did in the Garden of Eden, always wondering who is going to come and take away the rest. Suspicious of Christ as it is of all men. That was the temptation. You know, he just doesn't want you to be like him. That is why you cannot eat of that tree. Distrust. Mistrust. Lack of confidence. Whosoever desires to climb toward God must place in his heart these sentiments of reasoned confidence and make it second nature to respond to every apparently hopeless situation by this intellectual act of knowing that we are absolutely in the presence of Christ. I talk to myself. These are the hardest talks to give, especially when one becomes known. Because you know that I must read this and do this maybe more than yourself. Even if the events of my personal life or of my responsibility or of the life of my conscience become inextricably complicated and baffling, do what you wish. As for me, I am sure of you, but I am not sure of myself. The more I go forward, the more I become aware of my frailty, a frailty of which I used to be quite ignorant. So much the better. The more our Lord takes away those things of ourselves which we have trusted in, which is foolish because anything we have is a grace of God already. But the more he takes it away from us, the more we have to trust him. The more it becomes so very clear we must trust him. It's like a parent that sends a child to a boarding school. You have to have trust. Or it cannot work. You just worry. Just worry. We must entrust ourselves to God. And even though there's a veil of mystery there, if we do not trust, it's not going to work. It will not work. The apostles are not at the foot of the cross, even though they've already been to the first masses. An Aramaic mass. Look at Joseph. Look at Mary. Totally un inexplicable things happen. How could these things happen? There is a trust, which is why they are so vaunted among the litany of saints. My nature is overcome with dizziness as it approaches your sanctity. It discovers miseries in itself that it had never imagined. Lord, so much the better. I remain all the more sure of you, since you have given me too many examples of your kindness toward my misery for me ever to doubt that this kindness might not continue. If I doubt your power, I doubt your divinity. Do what you wish. I am sure of you. 
Take me to paradise. Let us not doubt our Lord also as we look upon our beloved Mother Church. God the Father takes the divine nature of his Son to marry it to our human nature. God takes the human nature of Mary to marry it to the divine nature. These things had to happen. A church is instituted. We must not lose confidence when we see the head of the church on a cross because to see the head of the church on the cross, as we will, is to see the members of the church on the cross. That is to say, the whole Catholic church hangs on a cross. It is walking the way of the cross. What will our Lord Jesus Christ hear from those around him? Come off the cross. We will believe you. You talked about saving yourself. You talked about raising yourself. Three days, this temple would be destroyed, but in three days you would raise it up. You have said these things. Come down off the cross. We will believe you. One more miracle. This is what the church is hearing from its enemies. Even within herself, they say the same thing. Come off the cross of your sacrifice of the mass. Come off that Latin mass. Come off that cross of sacrifice. We will believe you. We will believe that you are a good guy. We will believe that you're really sort of a hot woman. We will believe that you're really a cool kid. We will believe that you're with it. We will believe that you're Catholic. We will believe that you're not excommunicated or schismatic. Come off your cross. Some are losing confidence and are coming off the cross. First the priests, then the faithful, then more priests, and shamefully so. No confidence. Have we invoked St. Dismas to help us? Who saw the head of the church quivering and moaning and gasping and bleeding and sweating and soiled to see the Messiah in that? Let us pray to St. Dismas to give us confidence that for all this, the Church of Christ is still intact, all fair and all beautiful, because it is still. A saintly theologian during a philosophy class made the following reflection. It is when you are at the gates of hell that you have to remember to make an act of confidence. Confidence is made for hopeless cases. What use would it be when everything is easy? Do travelers, when they go out driving in the day, do they have much confidence? Do they need much confidence? No, it's only at night when it's raining or there's 12 inches of snow on the ground that they must have confidence. They just might say a traveler's prayer before they turn the key. All our lives will have their night just as they will have their day because Christ wishes them to render homage to his power and his love. Confidence will not be an accidental result of some 
fortunate or unfortunate occurrence, but the expression of how much love is in our soul. If confidence is proportionate to love, then you see why Dismas is a saint of charity. Such confidence, such great confidence, is proportional to a great love. What we need the most is to love Christ to the degree of being unable to ever doubt Him. To be unable to ever doubt Him. 